Bibles, uh, open with me at Mark chapter 14. What I hope we'll do this evening is to think uh, something about the nature of Christian worship. Because when you look at this event, uh, what we see is a history-shaping act of worship. You look at the beginning of our story, verses 1 and 2, and what you find are the religious leaders who are thoroughly opposed to Jesus. They are desperate to get rid of Jesus, but the one time where they will not kill Jesus it is during the feast time. Because at the feast, what would happen is the regular population of Jerusalem somewhere around 50,000, would would swell to maybe a quarter of a million people as as the whole nation would gather uh, to worship. And so um, the potential for for riot and for trouble increased. And so uh, the religious leaders thought, well, that's the one time where we don't want to do anything to Jesus. But by verses 10 to 11... We see that the betrayal and the murder of Jesus has been arranged so that days later he will die right in the middle, right at the peak of this feast. So what has happened to bring about this dramatic turnaround? Well, on the one hand, of course, we want to say that it's God's plan and it's God's timing. That, that God, before the, the foundation of the world, had established his plan of salvation, and that through the story of the Bible, um, he was indicating uh, the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so, Jesus would die as the Passover lamb at the time when uh, the people of Israel were remembering their redemption from slavery to become the people of God as as Moses led them out of Egypt. And so that was God's timetable all along. So we need to remember God is absolutely in control. People can make their plans, but God is in charge. And so these events must be understood in light of the plan of salvation. But we also need to see that the human spark to the murder and betrayal of Jesus lies in this woman's humble act of worship. This is the point at which Judas said, enough, this is done. And so he commits to his path of betrayal. So what I want to do is to look at this highly significant act of worship to explore together something of the nature of Christian worship with a hope that for ourselves, our worship of our God and our Savior would become deeper as a result. Um, So we're thinking about the nature of worship. But but I guess before we get started, we maybe want to ask the question, who is this woman? Um, So if you know anything about the Bible and and the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, you will know that there are a number of accounts um, where... uh, a woman anoints Jesus. And so some people try and uh, group them all together and so suggest that the woman here in this story is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And so they will look at John chapter 12, where Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, anoints Jesus, and they'll say, well, this this is Mark's retelling. 
But I don't think so. I think this is another woman. Um, you can you can look uh, at home if you want to see the differences, but the main differences are um, this anointing comes uh, two days before the feast, whereas in John chapter 12, uh, Mary anoints Jesus six days before the feast. Um, also, uh, this anointing here in Mark 14 comes after Jesus has made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, riding on a donkey, coming as king, whereas in John, the anointing comes before that point. Um, in this case, uh, the scene takes place in the home of a man called Simon the leper in John chapter 12. It's in uh, Mary, Martha and Lazarus's home. The focus in John is the fact that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, whereas here the focus is on this woman anointing the head of Jesus. So all that to say, we don't know who this woman is. But her act of worship is striking, so striking that it's recorded by Mark here and also by Matthew in Matthew 26. And you can look at how Matthew speaks about that in your own time. But interesting, when we consider the context, this is in the context of growing opposition uh, to Jesus, uh, in the light of coming suffering, uh, in the face of all this plotting, this woman will not be kept from honouring her Lord and Saviour. The Puritan Richard Brooks (coughs) makes a, a very astute comment. He says, Satan, the devil, wants to keep us from worship. And one way that he does that is to persuade us that the vast majority of the world does not love or serve God, to instill fear in us, fear of putting our head above the parapet. So when it would have been far easier for this woman to just keep her head down, to act in moderation, her worship of Jesus overflows uh, into this remarkable action. So what does her worship look like? Uh, Read with me in verse 3 where we find a description of of how she worships her Saviour. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Um, in verse 5 that this perfume would have cost more than a year's wages. So she basically takes her whole family inheritance, this family heirloom that's probably been passed down from generation to generation. She smashes that jar and she anoints the head of Jesus. Now remember this is coming up to, to the great festival time. It's an expression of thanks and joy. When the nation is looking back to remember the God who who won that great redemption from slavery um, during the Passover, uh, this woman chooses to worship her Savior in this way. She is worshiping the one who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She understands where Jesus fits in this story, that Jesus is the object of worship. So what can we learn about the nature of worship as we look at this woman's actions? 
Well, I think we need to understand that worship involves mind and will and emotion. In the sense that our mind receives truth about God, we discover for ourselves uh, the beauty of God's plan of salvation. We discover uh, the gospel, that great saving news of what God has done for us in Jesus. But it doesn't just stay up here as some theory or some interesting concept. It hits our hearts. It hits our emotions. Our love for God becomes deeper and that leads to action, that leads to response, it leads to giving something back to God. So whether that is giving money back as an expression of thankfulness for all that God has given to us, whether that is in praise, sung praise, whether that is in a new life of obedience, whether it is repenting of sin, in some way there is a movement in worship where where we learn something in our mind, it affects our hearts, and it changes uh, our outward actions. See these things expressed in this woman. We understand that she is a follower of Jesus. And so as we allow the truth of the good news of Jesus to, to, to work itself into our mind, as we meditate on God's word then it will move our hearts into to greater gratitude and love and worship that will express itself in any number of ways. But we need to understand that our worship cannot be forced and it cannot be faked. It needs input. It needs the input of God's truth and God's grace and God's spirit to empower our worship if it is to be genuine. And so we need to ask ourselves whether we are running on on full or empty spiritually. Are we day by day engaging with God's word? Are we taking time to meditate on it? Are we praying through Uh, The truth that we discover is Jesus big in our mind so he captivates our hearts so that our actions uh, become worship, as this woman's did. Another truth that we discover about worship is this. It's a wholehearted response to God. This is not... This Sunday religion that says, well, I do my work Monday to Friday, maybe Saturday, and on Sunday, I do the God thing. And, and once Sunday at half seven, eight o'clock finishes, then I'm just back to, to me and my stuff and doing my own work. This is bigger than what we do here. It encompasses who we are and how we operate. And so we have two wonderful examples Um, expressing just an all-of-life gratitude in the Gospel of Mark. So first of all, we have this woman here giving her life savings. That's a real expression of faith and worship, isn't it? And then if you turn back um, a couple of pages in your Bible, uh, we discover another woman in Mark chapter 12. Another side of the financial scale 
uh, but the same generous spirited giving. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. I just want to read these, these four verses. So Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So the heart is the same. I am holding nothing back. Worship appreciates that God has held nothing back from us. God has given us his first and his best. He has given us his son, Jesus. And so this woman expresses her thankfulness by this wholehearted worship, worshiping Jesus, the son of God, who in two days' time will die as the sacrifice for her sin. Worship makes sense because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You know, in light of God's determination to save rebellious sinners like us, when we consider the cost to God of saving us, as we take a step back and appreciate all the gifts and blessings that flow to us, Because of God's saving work, as we think about the fact that we can stand before a holy God and be accepted, that we can have an identity where we are sure that we belong to God, where we can think about a future where we know that our eternity lies with God, then surely worship, wholehearted worship, makes absolute sense. Worship is about forgetting self and being caught up with God's honor and God's glory and God's wonderful work on our behalf. It's a life that is shaped and transformed by who God is and what he has done for us. It's as as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, at the beginning of that that uh, great chapter where he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We see all that God has done. And we understand what our response should be. The theologian John Frame puts it like this. Worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history, the goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. The Bible tells us that you and I are made for worship. For that relationship where we stand before God and we give him the glory that he is due. And so this woman has discovered the proper focus for her worship, 
that of her Savior Jesus, and she found joy in holding nothing back. So that's the nature of Christian worship. But then in this little story, we also discover something of the offense of worship. So look with me at verses 4 and 5. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. At this point, we need to acknowledge, or at least I, I'll I'll speak for myself, we need to acknowledge uh, attention in this story in the that perhaps we can have some sympathy with the people who are confused uh, and shocked and, and feel a little bit uncomfortable in the presence of this extravagant worship. And so they are thinking to themselves, this seems a bit, bit wasteful, a little bit over the top, and so they feel a little bit awkward. One of the great fears in our society is that of religious fundamentalism, isn't it? Even to put those two words together strikes fear in many people's hearts. That idea that all the problems of life could be solved if only people would stop living by religious extremes. And to some extent, they make a good point because religion empty of Jesus and extremism are a huge part of the global crisis that we face. But here's the thing we need to remember, that fundamentalism per se is not a bad thing. It depends what the fundamentals are. As Christians, we want to be fundamentalists because we want our our fundamentals, our core essentials to come from Jesus. From Jesus, the one who welcomed outsiders, the one who loves rebels, the one who prays forgiveness for his enemies, the one who says, love your neighbor, the one who ties to rescue his neighbor. But some in the crowd become upset because of this extravagant worship. Couldn't she just tone it down a little bit? I think in our day, certainly in, in my experience, it's perfectly acceptable um, to be a Christian. There is a level of apathy that says, well, well, that's fine. I, I'm not really bothered. Um, just so long as your faith doesn't show itself too much, just so long as you keep it to yourself, then we won't have a problem. But dare to make a public statement of what you believe or really commit yourself to to serving the church and and loving your community in the name of Jesus, and then all of a sudden people start uh, looking at you funny, and there is confusion, and sometimes there is outright anger and hostility. There is um, an accepted um, double standard that that it's not worship that's the problem; it's worship of Jesus that's the problem. So so it's okay. Um, so so. Um, 
before coming down here, I, I was at a music event on, on, on Friday night in Glasgow, and it's perfectly okay uh, for a grown man um, to, to act as if the person on stage is some kind of God and give themselves completely to that. It's okay for somebody to worship a football club or their star player. It's fine for a city professional to give his all to the job. It's socially acceptable to create a situation where our, our self-worth and our identity is wrapped up in, in, in where we live and what we drive and, and what we possess. But it's not okay to live all out for Jesus. Giving our hearts and our lives to something infinitely bigger and more valuable uh, than, than what other people are living for is, is really not acceptable in our society. And so we see the offense of worship um, in two directions. Some are, um, in verse 5, trying to mask their shock with, with fine-sounding charitable care. Couldn't all this money have been, have been used to, to feed the poor? And then you have the brutal honesty of, of Judas, who says, you know what, I, I don't care about Jesus. My, my real God is money. I am offended that somebody would worship Jesus that much, that she would give away that amount of money because I I really wanted to get my hands on it. And so that act of worship leads him to betray Jesus. But what is clear is this. People are offended. People in our lives will be offended by true worship when they fail to understand who Jesus is. And there are some people even in churches who aim for moderation, for for toning down worship just a little bit, who I think don't fully understand the wonder of God's grace to us. Of course, if Jesus were just a a very good man, if he was just an excellent teacher, if he just brought um, a, a great set of moral reforms, then yes, giving everything for him would be crazy. But if Jesus is God, who became a man to live for us, to die for us, to rise again for us, to rule and reign for us, return to glory, to one day bring us to be with himself in that glory, then Surely nothing is too much to give back to him in response. So if we find ourselves embarrassed or confused or offended when we see genuine all-out Christian worship, then we really need to examine our hearts to see if we really know and love and understand who Jesus is. I also want us to think about the significance of worship. So we've seen the nature of worship and then the offense and the confusion and the shock of the crowd. And it's at this point that Jesus steps in to defend this woman's honor. Verse 6, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has got it right, Jesus is saying. 
in recognizing that I deserve everything, she is understanding the true focus of worship. He describes it as a beautiful act. Jesus delights in her gift because it is motivated by love and gratitude and a desire to honor her Savior. Some people looked at the anointing and they thought the value of it lay in uh, the the amount of, of money that the perfume was worth. The true value of this gift was not the year's wages. It's the love and the thanks that lie behind it. We may or we may not uh, be put in positions where we serve in spectacular ways. Some of our service, maybe a lot of our service, sometimes all of our service, is very quiet and private. Not public like this woman's. But here's the thing, Jesus delights in our acts of worship. It is possible for us to please our God and our Savior when we seek to serve him out of a transformed heart that is full of gratitude. Jesus says in verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. The gospel is full of moments uh, that speak far greater truth than, than the person ever intended. And so Jesus uses this anointing to begin to, to talk about the kind of death that he would die. So he says that that she has prepared for his burial. And in saying that, there is a connection with the way that Jesus would die. Why? Because only a criminal would not have their body anointed after death. A criminal would normally just be thrown into a common grave, as opposed to every other citizen whose bodies would be anointed uh, to prevent Um, a, a smell as the mourning process was going on. It's a reminder to us that the perfect Son of God will die under God's curse, treated like a common criminal. As this woman's Savior, as the Savior for sinners. It's a reminder to us that Christian worship is focused on the cross. The cross being the apex, the high point of God's love. It is the place where our deliverance is secured. It is the place where our triumph over sin is secured. So that now we live free of the penalty of sin. And because of the cross, we look forward to the day when we will be free from the presence of sin once and for all. So our worship focuses on the great work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus says of her anointing in verse 9, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. There's good news here 
Because Jesus knows that his death and burial is part of the gospel. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, Jesus already knows that although his disciples will look on his death as a disaster and the end of their hope, Jesus knows what comes beyond that. Jesus knows that he will be vindicated, he will be raised, and the good news will be preached that will focus on the cross and the resurrection and will incorporate this woman's worship. So Jesus can see beyond the darkness of the conspiracies. He can see beyond the betrayal of Judas to the light of God's plan to save sinful people like us. And so he can talk about the gospel being announced even before he dies. It's a reminder that God is on the throne, that God is in control, that Jesus walks to the cross with his eyes open knowing what it will accomplish. So Christian worship is inspired, empowered by the gospel. It's the saving acts of God through Jesus and the significance of those acts that fuel our worship. It's the fuel for our prayer and our praise and our service and our mission and our encouragement of one another. This woman is remembered in two gospel accounts. That promise of Jesus comes true because her worship was inspired by love, it was generated by faith, and it was full of generosity towards her Savior who would soon die for her. And so her witness continues to speak to us today. It shows us what true worship looks like and it reminds us to whom all our worship is due. The Christian life is a worshipping life. The Bible tells us that the universe exists to display the glory of our great God. Our existence is about seeing and celebrating the glory of our God. And Jesus entered into his creation so that our worship would also be focused on the glory of God's Redeemer and God's great plan of salvation. So is that where our hearts are at tonight? Are we full of love and wonder and gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus? Or are we trying to occupy some kind of safe middle ground? Will the gospel transform our worship as we gather together and as we scatter, as we go about our, our business at work or, or in university or as we try and witness uh, in our community and to our family and to our friends, will it be the gospel that fuels that worship? I want to conclude with a, with a quote from A.W. Tozer where he says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship 
is not ready for heaven. That's where we are heading if we are God's people to eternal worship, seeing and savoring the glory of God and celebrating it. That's what fills our hearts. Is that where we're at? Let's pray.